How's everyone doing? Good. Good. Well, I have the uh, pleasure of trying to keep you from a carb coma and a carb-heavy dinner. It's like all carbs, basically. Cookies, bread, pasta. So good luck to me. Um, I've entitled the sermon, Sexuality, uh, Not Just a Private Issue. And the reason I gave it that title is that many people these days consider sexuality to be a private issue, to be a personal issue. It's something you think about, it's something you act upon on your own in private or with select people. And certainly it's not a community issue. But when you look in the Bible, that's not quite the way the Bible treats sexuality. And we actually saw this last night in 1 Corinthians 5, when the sexual immorality of one person in the Corinthian community was a community problem, right? So, so you have the question, well, why is sexuality a community issue in the Bible? Why is it an issue that the community has to face? Well, let me give you three reasons for this. Three reasons. The first of these uh, is that sexuality is fundamental to who we are as human beings. It's fundamental to who we are. Uh, God created us to be sexual beings. Author Steve Garber points out uh, that sexuality is central to the community identity of God's people throughout the scriptures. Throughout the scriptures, here's what he says. I have the quote up here if you want to follow along. He says, oh, why is it that God chooses circumcision as the sign of the covenant? Why is it that community idolatry is primarily seen in sexual distortions? Why does God choose the marriage bed and the relationship of husband to wife as the primary metaphor of his relationship to his people. And, and obviously Garber's answer to that, these questions, is that sexuality is a critical component of, yes, who we are individually, but also who we are corporately. That's the first reason. A second reason that I think sexuality is a community issue is that a community's obedience to the Bible regarding sexuality is a litmus test for the Bible's broader authority in that community. So, so in other words, if we don't trust what the Bible says regarding something as important as sexuality, why would we trust what it says about anything? <clears throat> Steve Garber continues uh, and says this. He says, I'm sure that unless we are confident in this, what the scriptures tell us, sorry, that the scriptures tell us the truth about sexuality, about being bodies, and about uh, being full of sexual longings and desires, it is hard to believe that they, that is the scriptures, are true when they speak about the rest of life. And you know, I've seen this. I've seen this happen to people where uh, maybe they have a great faith in the authority of the scriptures. Maybe they grew up with that, and then... Um, Suddenly that face starts to crack, and where does it often crack? Maybe they're, they're reading through the scriptures, and they say, I, I just don't like, I like everything in here, except what it says about sexuality. I just, I just don't like that. And so that sort of causes uh, their, their confidence in the scriptures to crack a little bit, and then, and then that doubt starts to spread. 
And soon the authority of the scripture has very little role in their life. Third reason that is a community issue is that sex is a foremost idol in our culture. It's a foremost idol. You know, many people in the world, probably many people even in this room, have put their trust in sexual fulfillment to supply ultimate meaning and purpose for their lives. And so the result is that sexual expression, something that is a gift given to us by God, created by God, that gift has become for many communities more necessary to identity formation than God himself. So it is a community issue. Okay? And if we want to be a Christ-centered community, which we do, I think we must aspire to be a sexually pure community. Does not mean we've, you know, we're just going to arrive there next week, but we have to aspire to that. We have to care about it. So with that said, let's turn uh, to 1 Corinthians 6. You'll have it in your, um, in your booklets there. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12. Uh, just a little bit of background. In Corinth at this time, uh, sex with temple prostitutes was a, a common activity. Okay, And that's what's going to be addressed here. And, and what Paul's going to do is he's, he's going to push back against this common cultural practice and call the Corinthians to live differently regarding their sexuality. So let's see what, what he says, starting in verse 12. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I, I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you know, not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought, uh, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Uh, now my outline uh, tonight has... Three, three points. First of all, I want to talk a little bit about our culture's view on sexuality. Then I want to talk about God's original design for sexuality. And then finally, I want to focus in on why sexual immorality matters in a Christ-centered community. Again, why is this a community issue? I want to talk about that specifically. So let's talk a little bit about our culture's views on sexuality. I could probably spend a long time talking about this. I'm guessing there are probably courses at Princeton on this. Um, but I want to give at least two, uh, or I'll give you two distortions uh, of God's design for sexuality that are popular in our culture. Okay, I'll give you two. Uh, and the first of these is that sexuality is an appetite to be satisfied. It's an appetite to be satisfied. We actually see this in our text. So this is a, a, a distortion that we see in Corinth as well. The text starts and it says, all, lawful, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, when you see quotes, you see quotations there, all things are lawful for me. What that means is that this was uh, probably a common phrase that was used by the Corinthian church. And essentially it meant, uh, you know, because of God's grace, I can live however I want and God's still going to accept me. He's still going to forgive me. All, I can do anything and I'm good. So the Corinthians were using this all things are lawful for me mindset to justify then living according to the culture's view on, on sex. Well, what was the culture's view on sexuality? Well, we get that in verse 13 where it says the food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. Uh, so, so in other words, in the same way that uh, when you're hungry, you get some food. Uh, when you have a sexual craving, you go have sex. It's, it's just, it's an appetite. It's something to satisfy when necessary. Very easy to deal with this. That was the culture's view at that time. Now, I think in our day, you certainly see this as well. Okay? You see this in things like uh, the hookup culture that we often see at Princeton. You see things uh, in, in, in addiction to things like pornography and masturbation. What, why are these activities so common? Okay. Well, I think they're, they're attempts to, to get one spill, right? There's this urge. It's natural. So, so I, I, I want to I get my fill. I want to satisfy it. Satisfy the appetite, as it were. Very easy to fall into that. That, that way of thinking. That's a first distortion. But a second distortion I want to mention is sexuality as the source of ultimate fulfillment. The source of ultimate fulfillment. Now this view would not have been as popular in Corinth uh, at Paul's time uh, because there was a common mindset at the time that the physical body was inherently bad. Okay, So, so the average Corinthian, if he was looking for ultimate meaning, an ultimate purpose, he wouldn't have looked to it uh, uh, for it uh, through physical pleasure. Okay, that didn't make sense. Uh, you need to sort of separate from the physical and get spiritual, and that's where true meaning and purpose comes from. That, that was the Corinthian mindset, but I think in our culture it's certainly different, is it, is it not? That our culture places a sexual expression uh, with the love partner as, as at least a pinnacle, if not the pinnacle, of human existence. It's something you must have, or you're nobody. And so the result is that sex has, I think, become an idol, because without it, you cannot be fulfilled in life. You're, you're missing something if you don't have it. That, that's the picture I think our culture often paints. If you will have this, you're missing out on what life's truly about. It's a source of ultimate fulfillment. Well, what does God say? about all of this. What does he say? Let's talk about God's original design for sexuality. And, and what Paul does is he articulates God's design uh, with, with sort of two, a two-step, I don't want to say a two-step argument, but he, he sort of makes two critical points or takes two steps to, to argue for what, 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 what God's original design is. And step one is that he rejects a foundational assumption concerning one's body. Because, you know, I, I think all perversions, really, of sexuality assume at some level uh, that we're sovereign over our, our own bodies, that we can just do with them as we please. And Paul very clearly rejects that assumption. 
Now, he does so in verse 13 when he says, uh, well, he said, food is meant for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And then down in 19, he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so what he's saying is he's saying, listen, if you're a Christian, and I'll say this to you, if you're a Christian here tonight, Paul is telling you here that your body is not yours. That's, that's not a, a popular sentiment in our individualistic culture. Right? But that's what he's saying. He's saying you were bought, you were purchased. At the cost of the Son of God, God the Father redeemed you body and soul, from eternal death, and that means now that your body is his, and you can't simply do whatever you want with it. At some level, he has to determine what you do with your body. Because it's God's. It's God's even before it's yours. Like a tough thing for us to often wrap our minds around, but that is what Paul is saying here. So he pushes back against this assumption concerning one's body, that it's mine, that I do with it what I want. And then secondly, what he does is he locates proper sexual expression in the marital relationship alone. And he does that in verses 16, 17, and 18. He says, Or do you not know that he was joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he was joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. This is verse 16. Now, now, when verse 16 says here, um, there's quotations there. It says, the two will become one flesh. You've probably heard that before. That's, that's a quotation taken from Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And it's a verse uh, that talks about God's original design for marriage. Okay? And so this phrase, the two will become one flesh, is used to talk about marriage there, to sort of define marriage. And then it's used throughout the Bible to talk about marriage. Jesus uses it to talk about marriage. He uses it in Matthew 19. He uses it, he uses it in Mark 10. Paul obviously uses it here. Paul uses it in Ephesians 5. Okay, so, so it's used multiple times to talk about marriage. But I think that begs the question, though. Okay, Paul, so, so this is a marriage quotation. But, but, but why are you using marriage language when talking about sex with prostitutes? Like, what is the link? Between these things. And I think the link between these things is this. That, that, that what Paul is pointing us to is the fact that all sex, even sex with a prostitute, is covenantal in nature. Okay? It, it, it's in a sense like marriage. Because it's covenantal. You see, marriage is a covenant. It's a joining of two people in a committed, lifelong love relationship. And what Paul is saying is that the act of sex is also covenantal. Okay, so you see, sex is not just the joining uh, of two physical bodies. I mean, it is that, of course. But it's, but it's not just that. And that's why Paul brings up this quotation, and he actually uses a few different Greek words in, the, in this verse, verse 16. He says here, you'll notice he says, uh, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body, that's one Greek word, soma, 
with her, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh, sarks. That's another Greek word. Now, now, now these, these Greek words have some overlap, but they're also very different. And sarks is a much more robust word that, that, that means more the joining of persons. So, so not just the joining of physical bodies, the joining of persons, uh, body, soul, mind, heart. So, so when he says the two will become one flesh, he's talking about people coming together in their entirety. He's saying that when you have sex with someone, you're not only becoming one with them physically, you're becoming one with their entire person. And that is why then sex is reserved for the marriage relationship. You see, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to have your body and soul and mind united in the act of sex with someone to whom you are covenantally bound. Someone who's promised you unending love as long as you both shall live. Unending commitment through, 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 for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health. You've made, you've exchanged these vows. You know they're there. And they basically said, I want to share every part of my life with you and only you. And in, in the context of that covenant, sex is a beautiful thing. But, but you see, sex is a very reckless thing, a dangerous thing. Becoming one flesh is a dangerous thing when you're becoming one flesh with someone who you're not in covenant with, someone uh, who, who's, who's not willing to share their entire person with you, someone who hasn't made any kind of commitment to you, per se, someone who honestly may not even love you. That's a reckless thing. That's a dangerous thing, and in the end, you will regret that. See, God invented sexuality to be a mutual act of self-donation, self-giving, between a husband and wife in marriage. And, and any deviation from that is sexual immorality. And that's why Paul closes this, by, this section by saying, flee from sexual immorality. Okay, that word he uses is a broad term, just meaning all kinds of sexual immorality. Flee from it. And that brings us then to the final point. Why... Sexual immorality matters in the Christ-centered community. Why does it matter? Why is this a community issue? Because, you know, I, I've said a lot of stuff already, but you could still object and say, fine, Joel, let's say I even agree with some of what you said, but in the end, why is this a community issue? Because, you know, even if it is sin, if two consenting adults do this, uh, you know, why is it, you know, isn't it just, aren't they just sort of hurting themselves? Like, like, why is this a community thing? And I'll give you three reasons why it's a community issue. The first is that sexual immorality isolates us from each other. It isolates us from each other. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about my story. Um, during my first several years uh, out of college, um, I personally struggled a lot with pornography. So I, I know if any... You guys in particular, you struggle with that. I'd love to talk to you about it. I know what it's like. Uh, I know what it's like to fail. I know what it's like to have victory. Um, and one of the consequences of that struggle was that I, was, uh, I would emotionally and spiritually isolate myself from other people. Now, if, if you just can't, knew me, you wouldn't know that. Because you'd say, well, Joel has lots of friends. He's always hanging out with people. 
Um, he's always having fun. He's always doing social things, which I was. I had no shortage of social opportunity. But I avoided relationships that had the potential to go deeper that would require me to actually be known and be vulnerable. It's because I was ashamed. I felt guilty. And I didn't want to admit that I was a mess. So I think there's a pride issue there too. And I think this is what happens. You know, sexual morality, it just pushes us away from deep, honest, life-giving relationships with others in the Christian community. It entices us to put up fronts, to hide the mess that we really are from, from God and from each other. And yet God intends to use these relationships to help us. But we'd rather hide and avoid them. Sexual immorality isolates us from each other. Secondly, it's a community issue because sexual immorality causes us to dehumanize people. Dehumanize people. You know, when someone becomes an object of your lust or uh, you know, a, a partner to satisfy my sexual urge when I need it, um, in a sense, they become tools, right? Tools for your gratification, rather than image, image bearers of God. And so they're only worth uh, as much as the pleasure they bring you. So as long as they're bringing you that pleasure, they're worth something. But, but maybe they stop, maybe they don't turn you on anymore, and then what good are they? And if unchecked, I think this attitude subtly will... Um, spread to how you view other people. Okay, now it won't just be the people who you you know are involved with sexually or you're lusting after. But but I, I have seen this happen. I've seen this happen with me back when I was an adult, where, where this objectifying of people started to spread to to everybody. And I would just look at people and say, "What can this person do for me? How can they benefit me? And if if they couldn't really benefit me in any way, why would I be friends with them? There's no real value there." What was I doing? I was dehumanizing people. I was saying, I was, I was missing the image of God. They were only as good as what they could do for me. You see, we, we will have a beautiful community to the extent that we view other people as image bearers of God. This will be a beautiful community. But sexual immorality is antithetical to that vision. Third reason that it's a community issue is that sexual immorality moves us away from God's lordship. God's lordship. Look, with any sin, the more we allow ourselves to move toward it, right, the more we, we are controlled by it, the more we are enslaved to it, that's the language the scriptures use, you're enslaved to sin, then the more we're drawn away from, from God. But I think sexual immorality is particularly insidious in this regard. And Paul actually gets at this in verse 18 when he says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, Gordon Fee, New Testament scholar, explains it like this. He says, uh, Paul is saying that in fornication with a prostitute, a man removes his body, which is a temple of the Spirit, purchased by God. A man removes his body from union with Christ and makes it a member of her body, therefore putting it under her mastery. 
So essentially, we're taking our bodies, which are the Lord's, and we're giving them over to another master. We're moving away from the Lordship of Christ, the one who loved us and redeemed us and still loves us. And if we have a community of individuals who are all moving away, or at least many of them are moving away from God's Lordship, how are we going to be Christ-centered? It's not going to happen. We're going to lack unity, and we're going to lack love for God. So it is a community issue. Now as we close, um, I want to briefly touch on how we, as a community, fight for sexual purity. What can we do? Um, and I'll just give you two brief, brief things we can do. I think the first is that we think through what Paul means when he says flee. Flee sexual immorality. And that's very clear language. You just you run. You get out of there. Um, there's a lot I could say about how we flee, but I actually gave you a discussion question in your small groups about this. So you're going to talk about that. So think about it. What does that mean to flee? What does it mean to flee individually? What does it flee, mean for a community to flee from sexual immorality? Second thing we can do is we can continually remind ourselves of the gospel. Continually remind ourselves of the gospel. Because see, when we, when we recall the nature of our redemption, when we remind ourselves of the immense value that God places on us, that he would give his only son in our place, that is when I think we'll, we will be able to say, God, I, I trust you with my life, I trust you with my eternity, and therefore I also trust you with my sexuality. Because in the gospel you prove it that you're trustworthy with that. So I can submit it to you. And so I want to close by praying for us that we would have faith to believe that God is trustworthy with our sexuality. So let me close in prayer. Lord, it is hard to believe this, Lord. Um, to believe that you are trustworthy with our, with our sexuality, in particular in a culture like ours, where there are so many perversions of your design that look appealing. And honestly, many of them that are appealing, at least for a time. Lord, give us faith to believe that your way is worth it, uh, that it is right, that you are trying to hold out on us, but that you actually have uh, our, our greatest sexual pleasure in mind when you say it's for marriage alone. Help us trust that individually. Help us as a community move toward that kind of purity and through that process become more and more Christ-centered. Your spirit needs to do this work in us so we Give him permission to do what he needs to do. Help us, Lord, I pray in your name. Amen.